You're listening to audio from Calvary Baptist Church of Port Austin. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about us, please visit cbcportaustin.org. One negative aspect of living in the United States is that it's a pretty amazing place to live. And you may be like, why is that a negative? Well, the reason I say that's a negative, and, and sometimes can be a negative, not always, um, is because living here, we can, as Christians, we can become so comfortable at times and, and really enjoy this life so much at times um, that we can start to feel like we're actually home. Um, we can start to feel like this is actually our home. This is where we live. This is where we love to be. And we can forget as Christians that we're just passing through. And that our true home is far more glorious than this one. And it lies ahead. And, and the reason I say that that's easier for that to happen within the United States is because I want you just for a moment to think about this morning versus maybe Christians in other parts of the world. Okay, so this gathering may be just kind of a small part to your week. Maybe this is just something that it's kind of an add-on to an already overly crowded schedule, right? We are, we're all feeling so busy, and, and you can almost see this. If you're not careful, it can become somewhat inconvenient. Oh, i got to wake up. It's, it's raining out. Today would have been a great day to sleep in, and i got to get ready and actually go talk to people. And, right? Like it can become kind of an inconvenience, but I want you to compare that to other parts of the world where today there are Christians um, gathering in a crowded basement in the dark and someone's watching the door and the windows to make sure no one busts in and drags them to jail because it's illegal to gather. But in their world, the one place that feels like home is Sunday with the people of God. It's a small glimpse of their future home. Or maybe think of those Christians in, in the jungle who we've heard stories from missionaries where they literally have to have a temporary gathering place every week and they will carry furniture, church furniture, over their head for miles barefoot through the mud and set up a, a temporary church shelter kind of thing in the, in the wilderness and worship and then scatter again and hope that nobody found out. And, and I'm not trying to, to show those things to you to guilt trip you because guilt is not a good change agent okay it can last pretty it can work pretty good for like a short time you parents have kind of maybe learned that but it's not a long-term change we can't change over time from just constant guilt that's why God tells us in the gospel you're my child you're loved you're you're my beloved son or daughter so live like that's true not smacking us over the head get your act together right like it's it's God's love that pushes us forward but I, I compare those situations to here today where we just kind of got up and showed up. And, and just to remind you of the privilege that we have to gather here, but also to remind you that this place isn't our home. right? This, this place in the United States, as comfortable as it may be, and I know some of you have gone through devastating trials here. And, and the reason, I think, for that is God loves us too much for us to be really attached to this world. And sometimes it's in the suffering that we, we look ahead to that future home with so much hope and expect, expectancy. But, but I know for most of us, the majority of us, living here as a Christian isn't that difficult, if we're just honest. And so what can happen is we can become very comfortable. Um, we can enjoy it. And we can become distracted, I think, from the fact that this isn't our final home. And don't get me wrong, I love this country. And we shouldn't feel guilty for living here. That's Again, that's not what I'm saying. God put us here, did he not? So, so we shouldn't be guilty because we're Americans and we have all these freedoms. That's not a guilt, but it's just a reminder, man, what a privilege it is to be able to gather me and worship. But don't forget, as great as it is to live here, don't ever forget, this is not our final home. 
right? And that's one of the key themes in 1 Peter, that we are sojourners, that we are exiles, that we are just passing through. And for them, that was a great truth, a sweet truth, because they didn't live in America. Like they, they were under persecution. They were under social pressure. They were getting fired from their jobs and ridiculed by their families and, and even physically persecuted at times. And it would grow worse and worse as we, as we continue through the years. I talked about last week how Nero would take Christians and, and he would burn them and use them as lighting for his, his garden candlelight dinners. Terrible things. They would throw Christians to lions. They would, they would do all this crazy, horrendous things to them. And so for them... It wasn't home. This was never home. This was not comfortable. This is not what, we, what we're longing for. But as Americans, it's, it's sometimes hard to forget that, or easy to forget that, that, that this isn't our home. And yeah, we've got AC, and we've got heat, and we've got comfortable couches, and we can stream when we're sick. We can watch from home. But this is not our home. And some of you are like, man, thank God it's not, especially this year. is a little reminder it's not our home, okay? And that's what Peter wants these people to get in us as well by the Holy Spirit. That life on this earth is a sojourn. We're passing through. But that doesn't mean that life doesn't matter. Life may be short, but how we live this life has eternal significance. And so we want to make our lives count for the glory of Jesus. And so the question is, how do we get to the end of our sojourn and look back and say... We lived a life well for God's glory. And that's what Peter's going to get into in our passage today. Last week, he introduced the letter by reminding these Christians um, that they are in exile, but they have a living hope. He said, you can rejoice in your sufferings because it's a privilege to suffer. And you, can, you should reflect often on the fact that the prophets of old looked forward to this coming Messiah who would come and save us from our sins. And now you're experiencing that right now. So it's a privilege to live today as Christians. But now in this section... You may have noticed in verse 13, it said, therefore, right? What do I always say? The word therefore, always ask, what is it therefore? It's a connecting statement. It's a connecting word. And so therefore, based on all the glorious truths that we looked at last week, this is how we ought to live. And so the message today is life in exile. How do we live life in exile? How do we live, even though we're passing through, even though this isn't our final home, how should we live? And that's what Peter's going to look at today. And to kind of summarize for you, I want to look at all the commands that he's going to give us in three broad points. Um, look up, live holy, and love others. And I, and I used to alliterate all the time. Um, now I tend to make fun of it more um, because if you, if you listen to a lot of preachers where their points are alliterated, it's like that was a really big stretch to make that fit, right? Um, but this just happened to work. I know it's not, it wasn't on purpose, but it just worked, okay? Um, so the first one we're going to look at is look up. In verse 13, Peter says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, something to make note of here, that this is the first command in this letter, which is really interesting because we're at verse 13, but it's the very first imperative. It's the very first, do this. And notice, what did it follow? It followed after all of these indicatives, all of these things that are true of us as Christians. And just like in Ephesians, if you remember, chapters one through three were all truths about you, glorious truths of the gospel. And then four through six are the imperatives, how we live in light of those. And we can't reverse those because if we reverse the order 
in Scripture, what, what can happen is we can start living our lives and obeying the commands that we're about to look at out of an attempt to earn God's love or earn God's favor. And that's not how it works. God always says, this is who you are. This is how much I love you. These are the amazing truths of the gospel that are true of you, regardless of how you act. Therefore, in light of those truths, live like this. Now, there are certainly warning passages in Scripture that talk about if you're not living like this, then those truths that we just talked about might not be yours. So examine yourself with fear and trembling. But overall, when you look through the letters, it's always truths about us first, and then how we should live in light of those truths. And we should not reverse those. If, if you had to live every day wondering, is God happy with me today? Like, did I do enough today to, to, to earn his love? That's an exhausting way to live. And, and that is not how Christians are called to live. Peter, Peter gives us all these truths, right? He says, therefore, in light of the fact that in, in 1 through 12, we saw we were chosen by God. In light of that fact, in light of the fact that we were born again to a living hope, in light of the fact that we're enjoying the privilege of end time salvation, right? In light of the fact that we can rejoice in our sufferings because God's doing something awesome through them. In light of all those truths now, this is how you ought to live as sojourners and exiles in this world. Okay, so, so we need to understand that. And he says that we should prepare our minds for action. And this could be literally translated, gird up the loins of your mind. That's how the King James puts it. Um, and to gird up your loins was to kind of tie up all the loose ends. So um, I was going to get a robe out and kind of and model this for you, but I was like, that's going to be super weird and awkward. I wasn't actually going to do that. Okay, but the men would wear these robes, okay? And when they were going to go to war or go do something with action required, they would, they would take the, all the flowing parts of it and kind of gird them up in their belt so that they could move, so they could have mobility and, and, and get ready. That's what he's talking about, but he's applying it to the mind. So they would, it was a really good analogy that Peter was using here. He's saying, gird up all the loose ends, right? All the distractions, all the flowing parts, get them together. It's another way of saying, roll up your sleeves or get ready to work. And then he says, sober-minded, being sober-minded, that has the idea that's similar. We don't want anything intoxicating um, to interrupt our clarity of focus for Christ. Okay, that's what it has the idea of. And so I think the application here is really clear for us that I think many of us aren't effective as Christians, because we haven't cleared away the clutter and the distractions in our life and gotten ready for action. Right? He's saying, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Get ready. Right? Like, that's the first thing you need to know. You need to get ready. And why? Why do we do this? So that we can set our hope fully on the grace that we be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what we're preparing our minds for and being sober-minded for. So we can set our hope on there, which is why this first command, this first point is to look up. Look up. That's how we live in exile. We keep our eyes up on Christ. We keep our eyes up on the future glory that's coming, on the future promises, on the grace that's going to be revealed to us. We've already seen truckloads of grace that's been revealed to us as Christians, but there's more coming, Peter says. And so he says, look up. In the middle of that exile, in the middle of those sufferings, in the middle of those difficult times in this life, look up. Right? Get your eyes on Jesus, not on the circumstances. And I think what, what often happens is we, we get our eyes on the circumstances. We get our eyes on the troubles of this life. And, and it was very ironic. I chose this point um, without thinking about this. But then when I thought it through, it's so funny that I'm saying, look up. And we live in a world today where, where this is what everybody's doing, right? <laughs> Everywhere we go. And, and it's interesting to me. Um, that in, in Scripture we're told, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. Don't be distracted by all these things. 
And yet we are in an age of distraction that's far more distracting than we've ever seen before. And so, yes, we can be distracted by um, circumstances and struggles and trials in this life. But I think entertainment, social media, scrolling. Man, imagine if we would be people with our eyes up. Right? With our hearts on Christ. With, with, the, with the thought every day that, man, this isn't my home. I'm, I'm, I'm on my way home, though. And one day we're going to be before God in all of his glory with all of his people gathered to worship. Man, what a day that's going to be. And what's amazing is that over and over and over we're told um, to focus on the return of Christ in this letter. Eight times in five chapters, he's going re- to tell us, look to Jesus and his return. Remember that he's coming. How would our lives be different if we set our hope on Christ's return? If we recognize that he could come back at any moment, that before we finish this message, he could return. That's an amazing truth. And so as we're living life in exile, and it's easy to get distracted by everything going on, regularly look up to Christ. Remind yourself this isn't your home. Set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be revealed when he returns. Prepare for action. Be sober-minded and set your hope on Christ's return. I do want to say, if you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Christ, then, then the application for this first point is first and foremost to look up for salvation. The first time. Recognize that you are a sinner separated from God. And, and that he has to punish that sin. He's a just judge. But he has offered a way of escape. And that you can trust Christ and his work for you on the cross today. You can become his child. You can be forgiven by looking to him and living. By calling out to him for salvation right now. So look to him and live. That's, that's the first thing I see here. That we should look up as Christians. But secondly, we should live holy. Live holy. And I know holy is not a, a real popular um, thing to talk about today. Um, but he's going to urge his readers to live holy. And remember, holiness is more than just moral purity. It has the idea of being set apart. Of being unique. And really, of being truly human. You could say that holiness with an H is also wholeness. It has the idea of living how you were designed to live. Stepping into what God created you to be like. Right in the garden, what do we see? We see perfect holiness in the beginning with with love for God and love for one another and harmony and wholeness and, and peace and joy. But when sin enters, there's a fracture in the cosmos. And now we live in a life that's broken and painful. And every time we, we go away from God's design and holiness, it leads us to further brokenness. You see, holiness is like swimming upstream when everyone else is floating downstream. It's moving away from sin and toward God. And Peter's going to tell us um, to live holy, um, and, and he's going to give us some reasons too. In verse 14, he's going to say, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So he's saying all that sin that you used to take part in, all that, the, the former ignorance, he calls it, don't be conformed to those things. And said, verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So what he's saying here is that we should, as Christians, as children of God, we should desire to reflect the holy character of our Father. You could put it this way, we should be like a chip off the old block. We, we should see his goodness, his mercy, his love, his beauty, and we should have a desire as his children to reflect that character in our own lives. You know, if you were to look at photo albums of my childhood, 
you would notice that in lots of pictures, I am wearing the exact same outfit as my dad. And not only did I have the exact same outfit, I had the same haircut, like high and tight, this little military cut that he loved. And, and not only that, I was trying to make the same pose as my dad, whether it's flexing or whatever, right? Like I, I was always trying to be like dad. And that's a common thing that we see. But what's interesting about those photos is that nobody had to sit me down and say, son, you need to be like your dad. Like, like I didn't need any motivational speeches. I didn't need any lectures. My mom didn't come and say, you're going to get beat, son, if you don't be like your dad. Like, no, that didn't happen. No threats of punishment. It was just natural for me as my father's son to want to be like him. Why? Because I loved my dad. And we become like what we love. You need to understand that. It's a key way we change as Christians, as people, not just Christians. We become like what we love, what we look up to, what we see as great and as awesome. We tend to model that. That's why celebrities can, can wear some wacky, weird outfit. And you're just like, what are you doing? And then like thousands of people follow suit, right? And you're just like, what? We become like what we love. We, we look to things and, and we, we can idolize them if we're not careful. And then we conform to them. And, and what, what he says here is that as God's children, we ought to look at him and love him and desire to be like him. To reflect his character to the world around us. That's what we were made to do. Right? We're created in his image. Like little images, little mirrors to reflect his glory to the world. And as we grow in our love for him, we'll grow in our desire to become like him. So the first reason to be holy is really clear. Because you're his children. You should love him. And, and you should be holy because he is holy. But the second reason to live holy is because we should fear God. Which, man, that's an interesting one. And table talk, I have the question for discussion. Should Christians fear God? Okay, so listen, you, you can get the answer right here. <laughs> Verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So he's saying we should be holy because the one we call father is also the one we call judge. Judge of all the earth. And we ought to have a reverential awe of him. We ought to remember that we will give an account before him for the way we live our lives. Now, we need to understand as Christians, our sins have been punished um, by, on Jesus. Jesus paid for them completely. What did he say? It is finished. Not, okay, I made the first payment. Now you take over the payments. Right? That's not what happened. It is finished, paid in full. Okay, so we're not going to be judged by our sins before God if we're Christians today. Which is why if you're not a Christian today, I'm pleading with you to trust Christ. You will be judged for your sins if you're not a Christian today. So call out to him. It's a free gift. If you just ask, he'll save you. But those of us who are Christians, we will not be judged for our sins. We will be judged, though, on how we lived our lives. What we did for him with the time and the treasures and the talents that he gave us. And so he's saying, you ought to remember, yeah, he's your father, but he's also your judge. And you're going to give an account to him. And I don't think this is too difficult to understand. If, if you had a good relationship with your father, and some of you I'm sure didn't, and I understand that can be difficult. But if you did, there's a, there is a balance there. Like, I wanted to be like my dad. I loved my dad. I, I, I wanted to do everything that he did, right? I wanted to follow in his footsteps. But I was very much um, respectful of my dad. Right? I could tell you some stories um, that might get him in trouble because we're filming, so I'm not. But right, he, he was a dad that, that just commanded respect, right? 
And, and so we understand that. Um, another way to illustrate it is the ocean. Last week I talked about this. Um, as kids, we would go to the ocean every year as a family, and we loved the ocean, and it was in like April, and it was freezing, and all the locals were like, what are you doing in the ocean right now? Like, that's not the time that you swim, but Michiganders, man, we're in it, right? And as kids, we would get to that beach, and we would run through the house, and then we'd run out to the ocean, and the ocean was just amazing, and we loved it, and we wanted to run and just jump in the ocean and play and surf and all the things that you can do in the ocean. But our parents had to have a talk with us, when we started getting old enough to go out by ourselves and say, yes, the ocean is great. Yes, it's lovely. Yes, you're drawn to it and you can enjoy it. But recognize its vast power. The ocean can kill you if you're not careful. And I'm not saying that if you step wrong, God's just going to kill you. Like, it could happen, right? But, but that's not the type of fear I'm saying. But I am saying this. We love God and we draw near to him as father, but we remember who he is. He's a creator of all things. There ought to be some awe there, some reverence, some respect. And we ought to live our lives in such a way that, yes, I'm sure these Christians were afraid of the culture, were they not? They were afraid of persecution. They were afraid of all the things happening. But he's saying, fear God. And a fear of God will actually drown out all the other fears. Isn't that awesome? You know, when we live for God and, 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 and for him first then we don't have to worry what other people think of us, right? We don't have to be afraid of what other people are going to do to us, right? I often say that we don't need the approval of others because we have the approval of the only one who really matters. And what matters in God's world is what God thinks of us. That's what he's saying. As you live your life in exile, as you sojourn through this time, conduct yourselves in fear and reverent awe of God, first and foremost, and that's why Christians were able to be thrown to lions and lit on fire and all the other things and, and still stay true to God because they were first and foremost in reverent awe of him. And so we should live holy because of that. But not only that, he says we should live holy because we are bought with the precious blood of Christ. In verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited, inherited from your forefathers. Saying the things that you used to do, they're empty, they're useless. What are you doing? You, you, were, you were saved from that. You were bought from that. Just like the children of Egypt were, were ransomed. They were redeemed from slavery to serve God. And he says, you were bought not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, which we would be like, that's like imperishable. Like, that's, a, that's a best. But Peter's like, no, those are imperishable things. Because you were bought, listen, with the precious blood of Christ. Isn't that awesome? You were purchased by the creator of the universe with the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He was, for, it was foreknown in the beginning. God knew him and placed his love on him as his son eternally and, and knew that he was going to have to sacrifice him for our sins. And then these last times he was revealed who through him are believers in God. It's through Christ and his work that we're able to come and believe in God and be his children and who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So what he's saying is we're not purchased with the perishable things like silver and gold. We're bought with the precious blood of Christ. And he bought us for a reason. Not so that we could become his children and then run back to the things we used to do. Saying you're bought 
for a purpose to be set apart to enjoy the blessing of living for God, of loving him and loving others, of doing what you were designed and created to do, of stepping into real humanity, into wholeness, into fullness, of reflecting the beautiful character of the Father as shining as lights in this dark world. That's what you were bought for at an immeasurable cost. So why would we go back? To not live holy would be to miss the immense cost that God paid for us and the death of his son. And so Peter here reminds them, hey, be holy. He's your father. Be holy because he's holy. Conduct yourselves in fear and remember how much it costs the father to buy you. He loves you. He treasures you. And he bought you with a purpose for you to live for him. And we're going to see that theme throughout the letter. So we look up. That's the first thing. That's an attitude that we cultivate as Christians in exile. We, we keep our eyes up on Christ and the future glory that's coming. We also live holy, distinct, separate. We're swimming upstream. Everyone else is flowing downstream, following the course of this world, as Ephesians 2 says. We're we're living holy and separate and unique and beautiful, and there's something awesome about our lives. And then lastly, we love others. We love others. This part of the passage begins to highlight for us the communal nature of holy living. I often say that I used to think I was a pretty holy guy until I got married, right? Then I realized I'm like a jerk. I'm selfish. I get angry. I want things my way. Right? Like holiness is, is something, man, when you're with other people, it starts to reveal all the spots and the holes in your holiness. Right? There's something about we can be really holy when we're alone. But with people, man, it can start to rub off on us. And it can really affect us and bring out the worst in us. But if we'll allow it, it can shape us and mold us for the glory of God. I've illustrated it with the polished stones. Remember, if you get a stone, it's not, it doesn't come all shiny and polished like in the store. They throw it in this tumbler and it just bounces off all the other stones. And man, <clears throat> there's friction and they're rubbing off on each other and there's breaking and all kinds of stuff, but they come out polished. And that's how I see like the front door of this church. You're just getting thrown into a tumbler with all these different people and all these different uh, relationships and all these different uh, personalities that maybe aren't your favorite, right? And as we kind of rub off on one another and be together and obey the one another's in Scripture, God is making us more and more like Christ. So he says, love others. It's a communal thing. And this is why I, I say you ought to have in your life some intentionally intrusive relationships. What I mean by that is you're close enough with some people that they can get in your business, Right? Like I, Josh and I, we meet, we try to meet weekly and we we get in each other's business. How was your walk this week? Were you living holy? What are some sins you need to bring out in the light so we can kill? Right? How are some ways I can pray for you and encourage you? Right? When, when stuff is in the dark, it festers. We bring it out into the light. We walk in the light as children of light. Right? And so loving others has the idea of this communal nature. And verse 22 says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So as Christians, our souls have been purified by the blood of Christ. Our eyes have been opened to the truth. God's spirit indwells and empowers us to live holy. And here Peter says that living holy will result in loving others. In fact, if you don't love others, you aren't living holy. You may say, well, I love God, but man, I don't know about loving others. If you don't love others, then you don't love God. They're intricately connected. And notice, this love is sincere. In other words, it's genuine. It's not fake. 
Okay, it's not, good morning, brother, so great to see you, and then you walk away, man, that guy is so annoying, right? It's not like that, right? It's not a fake, it's a sincere love, which really the Holy Spirit has to create within us. This love is also earnest from a pure heart. It's fervent and zealous. And then next, Peter's going to ground this command to love in our new birth. In verse 23, he says, since you've been born again, and again, look at, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Doesn't he love comparing Perishable and imperishable. Why? Because we're constantly focusing on the perishable. And he wants to bring our attention to the imperishable. He says, you've been born again, not with perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And then he quotes Isaiah. He says, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And so he compares these things, and, and I just want you to think, imagine, he compares the, the perishable birth, physical birth, to the new birth. It's imperishable, right? And, and he says, imagine if, if you would just put your emphasis on the eternal, imperishable things. He says, you've been born again by the living and abiding word of God that remains forever. So this spiritual new birth should result in spiritual love for others. And again, he quotes Isaiah 40, which really kind of, Puts the hammer on the nail. But then we come to the end of this chapter. And you may think, why did you read into chapter 2? Well, these chapter and verse um, headings weren't there in the original. And as I was kind of reading, I feel like verses 1 through 3 help us summarize what we just saw. Okay, so we're going to jump into chapter 2. He says this, So, in light of what I just told you, So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So he's using that similar language we saw in Ephesians to put away things or to take off um, attitudes that are inconsistent with loving others. Malice is kind of a general term for wickedness. Deceit is a skillful or cunning lying. Some of us are good at the deceitful part. Hypocrisy is insincerity or being fake. Envy is jealousy or resentment toward others. And slander is abusive words falsely spoken to damage the reputation of others. And man, we certainly see that in a political season, do we not? What he's saying is, as Christians, loving others is characterized by putting off all these things that are so common among non-Christians. And if this doesn't kind of convict you during a, a political season to think through these things, am I putting off malice and deceit and hypocrisy and slander? Man, we've got to check ourselves. Make sure we're loving others. These are the opposite of loving others. And notice that there, a lot of them are kind of emotions in some ways, attitudes. And yet we're commanded to put them off by the Spirit. We're commanded to put these ungodly emotions and affections out of our souls. And then in verse 2, he's going to tell us what we should be like. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So what he's saying here is instead of those things, putting off those things, instead do this. It's very similar to in Ephesians when we saw put off, put on. And what he's saying is with the same desire that an infant longs for milk, we should long for God's word so that we can grow up into the salvation we've been called to. Those of you who have had children, you understand this, right? And it seems like right when you shut the lights off and you're getting ready for bed, that's when the infant wants milk, right? Just crying out. And um, so Peter's saying, right in the middle of the night, you should scream for God's word. No, that's not what he's saying. But you see the analogy he's making. Those babies, man, they want that milk, right? They are crying out for it. They're desiring, they're longing for it. 
What he's saying in the same way we should have this appetite in our lives, this longing for the word of God. You know what's interesting? How do you get that appetite? By reading. It's like a trap, right? Like what? Yeah, read the word and you'll find your appetite grows. It's kind of like a person who just always eats M&M's. And you're like, hey, you want a steak? And they never had steak before. And they're like, oh, no, that looks weird. I want these colorful M&M's. But they just don't know what they're missing. Now, for those of you who don't like steak, I'm sorry. Um, repent afterwards. No, I'm just kidding. But you understand what I'm saying. Like when, when, when our appetites are, are catered to a certain thing, sometimes we need to retrain them for what's really good. And that's what happens here. We long for the word. We get in the word. And slowly but surely, I'm telling you, at, at first it was a discipline for me to read. Now I'm like, I love this. And it's not because I'm a pastor. It's just something that happens. I'm telling as you get in the word, you will desire to be in the word more. And then in verse 3, he says this. If indeed... You have tasted that the Lord is good. This is a reference to Psalm 34, 8, which says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I love how Jonathan Edwards illustrated this. He said, it's kind of like honey. You know, if you had never tasted honey before and, and I had said, okay, let me describe honey for you. It's like sticky and sweet and like, I can't really tell you what honey's like, right? I can give you the chemicals and stuff that make it up and all the, all the whatever. But what, what needs to happen? You need to take a bite of that honey, right? Like you need to taste it to really understand. In the same way, I can tell you all about what it's like to walk with God and to love him and to wake up early and spend time in his word and pray and, and just delight in him. Last night, I, I just went in my living room and sat in the middle of the living room and just delighted in God. And, and man, there's just something amazing. I can't tell you how it's like. You've got to experience it for yourself. You've got to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so that's kind of how he wraps this all up. And and so in today's passage, we learn to live in light of the amazing hope by looking up, living holy, and loving others. You could simplify this by saying, be like Jesus, right? Like the whole point, the whole point of all of our um, moral things that we try to do is, is ultimately by the Spirit working in us to be like Jesus, like we were created to be. But notice that these aren't things that you can simply check off your, your list to do. Right? You can't be like, okay, tomorrow, let's see, i got to go to work, get groceries, look up, got to look up, um, got to live holy, love others, um, and then stop by the store and pick up. The, like, it's, it's not a list that you can just kind of check off each day and, all right, I'm good. Right? Like, these are attitudes that are cultivated over time. And so the question is, how do we cultivate these? Right? Like, how do we grow into the type of life where in exile... We are constantly looking up. We are living holy. We are loving others. It's just part of who we are. Well, I think Peter gives us the answer throughout this passage. In verse 23, he says, Have been born again. You've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Verse 25, he says, The word of the Lord remains forever. In that same verse, he says, The word is the good news that was preached to you. And then in chapter 2, he says that you should desire this word like newborn infants desire milk. And I think this is the point. It's God's word that's going to change us. It's God's word that's going to cultivate these attitudes within us of looking up, of living holy, of loving others. It's by a daily just diving into the word. One of my commentaries put it this way. One could easily feel overwhelmed and altogether inadequate to respond to the numerous ethical injunctions in this paragraph, right? It's just like, oh, how do I live this? That's a lot. That's a lot, Peter. I'm really busy, right? But notice the transformative and energizing power that comes from the daily ingestion of God's revealed truth. 
In other words, what he's saying is growing in Christ's likeness is slow and steady, but it happens from just daily ingestion of the truth, like, like the milk for the baby that grows, which is why I always say, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, 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 right? The children's song. This is where we see the glory of Jesus, and this is where we change. 2 Corinthians 3.18 puts it this way. We're almost done. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What he's saying here is, when we gaze at the glory of the Lord, perfectly displayed to us in Christ, we see his beauty, his splendor, his majesty, we see him and we we treasure Jesus in the word. We're amazed by his love and his mercy and his grace as we behold him. And even though we may not notice it right away, as we're treasuring God and seeing his glory in the word, the Holy Spirit is transforming us, performing a miracle, transforming us into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Just like as a child, nobody had to force me to be like my dad. It's just the more I looked up to him, the more I loved him, the more I saw him as someone worth emulating, the more I wanted to be like him. And as we look into the word, it's not just a natural thing, it's a supernatural thing that God does, where he slowly but surely makes you more like Jesus. And so here, I think, is a takeaway for you. We become like Christ by beholding Christ. As we look into the word, and we see him in all of his glory, and we behold him, the Spirit starts to transform us, and we become like him as we behold him. Why? Because we become like what we love. And so all these commands to look up and to live holy and to love others flow out of the word where we behold Christ in his glory, and slowly but surely we become like him. This is how we make our lives count during this sojourn. This is how we live in exile. This is how we get to the end and we look back and we say, this was a life worth lived because I beheld Jesus in all of his glory and little by little every day, like my daily food, I was nourished and built up and made to be like Jesus and the attitudes of looking up and living holy and loving others started to become part of who I was. And so pray the word, read the word, listen to the word, meditate on the word, memorize The word, come and hear the word preached. And slowly but surely, God will use his word to transform you as you're captivated by the glory of Jesus Christ. Look up, live holy, and love others by beholding Christ in his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Lord, thank you that you don't just call us to do these things, you empower us to do them. And Lord, I just pray that we wouldn't leave with another list of things to try to accomplish in our own strength, but we would look to you. And if we don't get anything out of the message, Lord, I pray that we would get this every day, whether it's five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour, we get in your word. We behold Jesus and his glory. We're captivated by him there. And you use that in a supernatural way to make us the type of people we're called to be as we live this life in exile. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.